Okay. Let's get started. Uh, so everybody, welcome to Boss Talk. Um, I am uh, Ben Horowitz. With me, I've got Ali Goetze, CEO of Databricks, and Shaka Sengor, uh, head of DEI at TripActions. Um, and we're going to talk some boss stuff. And uh, Felicia, you had a question for Shaka to kick it off? Yes, Shaka's wild. Um, Shaka and I, we go way back. Uh, we Our friendship was kind of discovered on Facebook. I messaged him and I'm like, yo, I heard you have this really cool gallery. I want to read your book. <laughs> Send it to me. I want to hear about your journey. And it was just so amazing. He was such an incredible literary artist. And you lived in Detroit at the time, right, Chaka? Yeah, I was still living in Detroit. Yeah. And I'm like, well, can whenever you come to Silicon Valley, Ben and I would love to have dinner with you. And uh, of course, Ben was a little nervous, but that's a different story. <laughs> but it all worked out and we became fast friends. And then you went from that space as a great literary artist to working in prison reform to now you are a very loved, well-respected tech executive. So I thought you, if you can help people connect the dots on why Ben and I are so excited to have you in this room today. Yeah, maybe yeah, just kind of, yeah, and, you know, give as much as your background as you like, because everybody knows me, Ali, and Mark already. Yeah. Yeah, no, so thank you. Thank you so much for that, uh, Ben and Felicia. And I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation today because I get a chance to really talk about a different part of my life. And, you know, for those in the audience who are just becoming familiar with my story, you know, I was incarcerated um, at the age of 19 and ended up spending 19 years in... Sorry about that, a call was coming in. Uh, and But prior to that, uh, prior to going to prison, you know, I grew up in a household in the city of Detroit that on the outside looking in was, you know, the model for working class America. Uh, unfortunately, there was just a lot of abuse going on at home. And I decided to run away. Uh, and, you know, when I ran away, I ended up getting seduced into the street culture what a lot of people didn't really know about that time in my life, I was an honor roll scholarship student. Um, I was like the cool, cool nerd, so to speak. Like I always, you know, loved learning and, and was curious about a lot of things in the world. And so when I went to prison, you know, I met these incredible mentors who guided me to books and, you know, it just really awakened a different part of me. It wasn't a, a straight and narrow path. Like, you know, I love, I know people love to kind of hear that straightforward story. But I got into tons of trouble in prison, um, ended up in solitary confinement for a total of seven years. But it was in that environment that I really became a lot more curious about the world and just started reading things. And I knew when I came home, you know, that I would be doing work around helping people just recognize uh, who's actually in prison. Uh, outside of the little splash that we hear on the news, it's often just kind of like, oh, this person did a bad thing, they're in prison, and we forget about them. But I met some really brilliant men on the inside, and I wanted to be intentional about, you know, sharing my story in a way that opened it up to share these other stories. And that's how I started the criminal justice work that uh, Felicia talked about earlier. But on, on my journey to freedom, you know, I kind of got introduced to just the world of, of technology um, when I had a fellowship at MIT Media Lab about two years after I was released from prison. And you have to imagine for me, that was like the greatest culture shock uh, to walk out of a prison, you know, after being gone for nearly two decades and to find myself in a space of just robots and, and 3D printing and 
AI and things of that nature. And I always tell people it's kind of like Fred Flintstone walking into an episode of the, of the Jetsons. Uh, but my work there led to me teaching at the University of Michigan. Uh, you know, I ended up doing this TED talk that really kind of shifted the conversation around incarceration. But I was curious, you know, I was curious about life. And, you know, I did a lot of work in the criminal justice space, but it wasn't really feeding that intellectual curiosity or the entrepreneurial spirit in a way that I really desired. And so, you know, starting to hang out, uh, you know, obviously with, with, with Ben and, and you, Felicia, you know, just really learning more about technology and entrepreneurship. And, you know, I did a talk with Ben some years ago, and we were really just talking about how street entrepreneurship has the same fundamental principles as, you know, legitimate enterprise. And, and you know, that just made me feel confident of venturing into these different spaces. And so I started off consulting for a couple of companies. Um, and most of that con consultation was around culture. But the more I was doing it, the more excited I was to explore this other part of my mind, which is like, what is it like to be in a fast-growing startup? What is it like to be in corporate as opposed to nonprofit? And, you know, that's what led me down the path. And eventually I ended up uh, joining Trip Actions this past July. And it's been a phenomenal experience. You know, it's been a, a, a very steep learning curve. Um, but that learning curve is what kind of charges me up in the morning. You know, the opportunity to actually learn from great entrepreneurs, great leaders, um, you know, great salespeople and see where the things that I actually knew really had resonant, but also to be open about the things that I didn't know and the willingness to be collaborative in that learning process um, has just been a phenomenal experience for me. And, and to now see months later where the work, you know, my, my work is really impacting our company culture. Um, you know, it's just been a phenomenal experience to, to be in this space. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, the end of how Shaka became a tech executive in that we had, uh, so at Trip Actions, we had a little trouble with Delta Airlines and uh, we resolved that trouble. And so we had a celebration dinner about it. And, um, you know, Felicia said, well, maybe we should have Shaka at the dinner too. And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. Everybody likes Shaka. It'd be a, it'd be a fine dinner. But it was really interesting because uh, coming out of it, Ariel said, you know, Shaka's really smart. I said, yeah, I know that. I was like, I I'm not just friends with people who come out of prison. <laughs> like, that's not, that doesn't make you my friend anyway. Like, you know, it's um, happy you got out and free and everything, but we got to have something in common. I said, he's like, well, what do you talk about? I was like, we talk about boss stuff. You know, we just boss talk. Um, which is uh, kind of good. It's very true. Is, is the <laughs> it's very, I remember. But I ended up, you know, I had been working on a new book and I gave uh, Ariel a galley and, um, you know, he read and Shaka was in the book because, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, Shaka and I talk about is kind of culture and how it works. And off of that, Ariel said, you know, I, I think Shaka should be a consultant. And the next day he's like, he's not, I think Shaka should be an employee. <laughs> And, uh, you know, now, of course, uh, you're ex an executive over at Trip Actions. And um, I thought we might start off because, you know, one of the first questions that you got, which I thought your answer was amazing, um, was, you know, you got called over to Trip Actions. They were scaling very fast at the time. This is before the pandemic shut them down to a large extent as a travel company. Um, and you had gone to Dallas, uh, where their customer support organization is, and they were having scaling issues. 
And maybe you could just kind of relay that conversation um, if you can recall it. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you remember it, but uh, kind of what they were struggling with and uh, how how you helped them with that. Yeah, so, so you know, this pandemic, as I'm sure many companies have felt just the, the gravity of it and, and the seriousness of it. And, you know, coming, in, coming into the culture, you know, I can honestly say I was like, I was like scared as shit. You know, I'm like, you know, not only am I coming into a, a new company culture, uh, but this is also a relationship, you know, and, you know, you know, we're like brothers. I, I mean, I know a lot of people don't really understand the depth of our relationship, but we're, you know, we, we become really like brothers and it was just important for me to like fully show up. And, you know, some of the cultural struggles was, was with the, the layoffs. So you talking about that part, like the, the pandemic, uh, I, I was actually, <laughs> I was actually talking about before. Remember when they they're like, "We need to, you are just a consultant," but they're like, "You know, we're having trouble with scaling, and uh, you know, people are kind of talking about each other behind their back and that type of stuff." Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. So, so I vaguely remember because it's been a lot <laughs> in the last seven months or so uh, in, yeah. in regards to that particular conversation. Well, you but. could tell any trip action story. Yeah, no, but but yeah, one of the things coming in that that was a big part of it, right? It's like yeah. you know, understanding from my experience of being in prison, right? This this kind of idea that within our organization in prison. So just for context, I, I was one of the heads of a, a organization that the prison labeled as a gang or a security threat group. Um, <laughs> yeah. And security threat group. Yeah, with with within that within that culture. You know, we had some principles that was really fundamental to keeping our organization strong because there were like tons of beefs that would happen on the yard, and and there were we had like one of the smaller crews. But you know, it's funny now because we talk a lot about talent density. Uh, that was kind of how we recruited. Uh, you know, we recruited guys who were disciplined, um, who was willing to make necessary sacrifices. And one of those fundamental principles was that you can't build a strong team if you allow people to talk behind each other's back and not basically punish that behavior. Um, and so in, in prison, what we would do is if you were, you know, caught talking behind a member's back, you know, you would have to confront that person and we would have a real sit down and then if dealt with it in different ways. And obviously you can't apply the ways, you know, the, the <laughs> methods that we, we had deployed on the prison yard and company culture, but it was the same principle is that, you know, you have to create space for, first of all, for, to, to figure out what is it that both people want uh, when resolving a conflict. And if there's, you know, a person who is just hell-bent on being a toxic person, then you just have to make a fast decision and remove that person because it's just bad for company culture. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and, and you know, one of the things that you said, and I remember that was so good, is you said, like, you know, people are talking behind, you know, they're, they're talking about each other, and, you know, that's a problem, you know, because to your leadership uh, in prison, that's a problem because, you know, these guys are almost like snitches. They're running around talking about each other like that. And, you know, we're all in the same group. And they all said, yeah. And you said, no, you're the problem for listening to it. Absolutely. <laughs> and I thought that was such a great insight for managers in a company because, that's what happens, right? Like people go, well, that guy's not doing his job and you're listening to it. And, and you're not dealing with like the fact that 
you know, those two, like, that's a conflict that needs to be resolved is, you know, is something that so many, so many managers in Silicon Valley just missed out all the time that they, they, they facilitate that kind of, you know, behind the back, not straightforward, indirect culture that can be so destructive. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was yeah. one of the, one of the things in, in prison about that is what we recognize is that when you allow people the space to do that, it just breaks down all trust. And yeah. if, if you can't, you can't build a strong culture where there isn't, you know, a degree of trust when it comes to accountability and collaboration. And, you know, that, that was something that really resonated is like, you can't come and present to me something that you haven't shared with the person that you're talking about. Because basically what I'm saying is, if I allow that, then I'm giving permission for you to continue the toxic behavior. And then it just undermines the whole trust of the organization. And if you're a manager, like that, that's so disruptive because then nobody feel like they can count on you when they actually need you. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. That's, that's awesome. Go ahead, Ali. You know, hey, Shaka, um, uh, one thing that, you know, uh, I'm glad you brought up the issue of trust because I think that's one of the most important things for any company, any leadership position, uh, building trust with your exec team so that you can, um, you know, so you can basically together drive that enterprise forward and delegate decisions and uh, go through rough times together. And that's why I think, um, you know, I think leadership is the same, frankly, wherever it is. It's about getting lots of other human beings to follow you, believe in your direction, trust you, and then accomplishing something great together. Um, so I'm curious, in prison, um, trust must be even more important there, right? Uh, because, uh, you know, it's, uh, the stakes are so high. Uh, so I'm curious, how did you build trust with, let's say, your inner core leadership team that you had? Uh, how did you know that you could trust them? That, that, you know, you could, you know, they wouldn't turn around and stab you in the back. Uh, how do you build that trust? And <laughs> are there any lessons yeah. we can learn that we can sort yeah. of transfer over to enterprises? Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's really a great question. And it's, and it's really because, you know, it's interesting because when people think trust in prison, it seems counterintuitive to be like, how do you trust somebody in prison? Um, what a lot of people don't know is that your rise to leadership is really predicated on you being a person of your word um, and to be unwavering in your word, no matter what the circumstances are, and I think one of the things that I was able to figure out early on was, you know, there's a lot of power in diplomacy that's not wrapped in like cowardice, but actually just wrapped in courage where you're willing to say, you know, I'm going to take a different route because I know that we can produce an outcome that's advantageous to both of us, as opposed to I'm going to take a different route because I'm afraid of the consequences. And so when it came to our team, you know, one of the things that was really important was this idea of the lesser of the person within our team, we make sure that we take care of them. And we make sure that we break bread weekly. Um, you know, we would work out on Sundays, we would all get together and we held each other accountable. And like that challenge of consistency, like no matter what a person's rank was on the yard to always hold them accountable. And for people to see that, you know, especially in an environment that's very uh, open, despite the fact that prison is closed off, so to speak, right? Um, and what I mean by that is if you're on a cell block and it's 50 cells, you pretty much know everybody's business because you don't have the, you know, the privacy of a home. 
Um, and so what you do in that environment literally means everything. So if, if you say, you know, for example, if there's a conflict and as a leader, you recognize that this conflict is going to be, you know, problematic for everybody. Like you have to make the decision that's in the, in the best interest of your group, but you have to stand by that decision. And if you go to a person, another party where you have a conflict with and you give them your word that, you know, your team is standing down, but then somebody on your team does something anyway, then your responsibility is to deal with that person or your team uh, after the conflict is resolved because it undermines, you know, this trust element. And, you know, there were a lot, there were a lot of unscrupulous leaders and what ended up happening is other organizations would turn on them because of this like very fragile uh, system we had that requires you to go to like a, a communal meeting or, or almost if you have like a conflict with warrant organizations. And I think those same principles really apply when it comes to your team. Like you have to spend time with your team. And I know it's difficult, like in this current climate, you know, people can't really do offsites and things like that. But, you know, I think smart CEOs figure out a way to get their team together uh, in person, even during these times, because it's just, it builds like a level of trust and accountability. And it's really about respect and honoring the people that you're working with to say, listen, we're going to figure out how to spend time. And I think it works really well when the conditions are tough because, you know, you want to know who's in the trenches with you, um, whether they're going to fully show up. And I think at Trip Actions, uh, one of the things that that really is, has been impressive to me is how our team consistently figure out ways to show up despite being in a global pandemic. Well, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I was just going to say, maybe you could highlight a little more because it's a really subtle point that you made that your word outside the organization actually affects the trust that you have with your own team. And maybe you could go a little more into detail on that because I think a lot of leaders don't see that. They think, oh, I can maybe break trust with a customer or partner or something like that, and it's not going to affect how my staff sees me? No, that's that's a great question. And, and, and the way in there, I mean, like, everything is literally life and death in there, right? And yeah. so, you know, your standing in your organization is really predicated on your ability to actually lead in difficult times. And, you know, there was, there was a time, and you talked about this in the book, Ben, where there was a major conflict that broke out between my organization and another organization and it was around just like real hardcore street and prison principles. And basically the story was the other organization who we got into conflict with, they were basically sheltering a guy who wasn't technically a part of their organization. And this person, he had, you know, killed one of our members' daughter. And in prison culture, I mean, it's, it's like the absolute worst thing you can do. And so there, you know, a conflict arose out of that because, you know, our team was like, you know, he has to pay for that. And so it became extremely tense on the yard because initially they didn't want to get a guy up. And, you know, as the leader, I couldn't not stand on the principles of what our organization stood for and still garner the respect of my team or their team. And so when I kind of laid down the gauntlet, you know, I knew that in that moment, if I backed off of that, then our organization would lose power and potentially a lot of our members would eventually get hurt. 
And so just being able to stand in that when the odds were against us is signal to our team that this level of dedication and trust and care um, is something that, you know, is a priority. And it just made them take a stronger stance and just say, listen, however this is going to go down, you know, we're going to ride it out because we know you're going to ride it out. And I think the same thing holds true, you know, and especially during these times. I think if these times have taught us nothing else, it really um, shows us like there's an opportunity here for you to really figure out who your team is, who are the people that's, you know, committed, you know. And, and of course, with us, we're in, you know, we're, we're, we're a startup at this point and we get hit with a global pandemic and we're a travel company, a travel, you know, so um, to see the people who really <laughs> yeah, stepped that's good up. Yeah, and, and just to see, like, you know, Ariel in the trenches and, and bringing the team together and consistently saying, listen, we're going we're gonna to win this thing. Um, you know, it just requires us to have a great deal of trust in him. And the way that he's built that trust is how he's dealt with, you know, customers and he's dealt with partners. Um, and he just really uh, commands that respect because of how he shows up. And when you got a leader like that, it's easy to stand side by side with him. Um, in the trenches. Yeah, I, I think the analogy, there's a lot of analogies here. I mean, it's so it's the, ben, the one Ben brought up, which is the way you behave outwards with partners, customers, people are going to look at you. And you can't say, oh, you know, yeah, we lie to customers, but we don't lie in my company to each other. That's not going to work. But it's also, you mentioned trust. Uh, but I also find that the example that you were giving, you were saying, you know, you have to make sure that your team members cannot deviate from the principles that you have. It's kind of similar to uh, the topic that comes up in companies all the time, which is what do you do with brilliant jerks? I'm sure you had them in the, you know, uh, in prison as well. Just people that are all around really good, but they have flaws. And some of those flaws violate the principles that you have and the culture principles you have. And it forces you to make difficult decisions. And you have to decide, uh, do you sacrifice that person? Do you actually sort of say, it doesn't matter how good you are and all these things that you've done and the history and all that, we just can't tolerate this one thing about you? Uh, or do you look the other way and say, well, you know, he or she is so amazing that, you know, we're going to protect them regardless. Yeah, they can violate the rules. Uh, how did that come up? Yeah, it actually came up surprisingly a lot. Um, and I, I remember this this one story. So there was a there was a member of our organization and he was a kid when he went to prison. He was about 15 or so. So he really grew up in, in that environment. Um, and he was, but he was a kid from a good home. So he had, you know, people who loved him and cared for him and would provide him with money on his books and, and commissary uh, things. like. And money on the books mean money in his prison uh, account. And there were a couple of members who were basically taking advantage of him, unbeknownst to the rest of the organization. And they were members who had, you know, a long-standing history, reputations for being just, you know, stand-up guys. They were the kind of frontline soldiers. And the hardest thing to do is lose good soldiers in an environment where battles are constantly happening. But as the leader, you know, I knew that if I was going to, you know, really lead this organization the right way, that I had to make a, a hard call. And one of them was actually a friend of mine. And so basically I, I presented a, a scenario for them to, first of all, you know, return everything that they had, you know, taken from him, but also to step up in their responsibility um, while they were suspended from their positions. And that was hard for them, like, to, to be, you know, reduced in ranks 
Um, but because I was willing to stand firm on the principles of the organization, and I was willing to go to war for this member who didn't have, you know, the means to go to war for himself, it was one of those pivotal moments that really shifted uh, what leadership looked like in our organization, where there was no tolerance for unscrupulous behavior amongst our members. And, you know, and initially it was a really tense standoff. You know, we had to come out the yard and have a lot of talks and there was a lot of weapons involved and things of that nature. But fortunately, uh, the swaying of, of, of just being able to stand firm in that really got the other members to rally behind me. And so the odds were just like not in their favor. Um, and I think what the lesson learned from that and from them was that you garner more respect when you're true to the principles and you're true to your word. And eventually they were able to redeem themselves. But we've had other members that weren't able to redeem themselves and they got kicked out of the organization and it made their time in prison, you know, very difficult from yard to yard. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, but I have like a million questions. So I don't want to like it. Yeah, yeah no, go ahead. Um, <laughs> ask the next one. Cause I, well, I, all right. I, I have transition questions, but like, I'm, I'm liking this line of uh, discussion right here. Yeah. I mean, the thing I'm curious about is how do you actually decide your cultural principles? Right. Because, you know, um, some of them are, you know, how about, how do we behave with each other? How do you and I get along? How do we, how do we sort of win together? But some of it is also like, it's, it's also evolutionary. What makes us win together? Like as a, like what, you know, we have to survive. Uh, that's what's going on in a company, right? You have like principles, like, oh, we're a teamwork oriented company. Uh, but you have also some principles, like, you know, my example is Amazon has frugality principle. That's how they make sure that everything they produce is cheap. Margins are uh, low and they can compete in the market. There must be similar thing, reasoning that goes on within the prison because it's literally about survival. How do you decide which culture principles you should have? Right, and and Chaka, maybe also talk about because you ended up, you came up with a set of principles that were set for you because you you kind of went up the ranks, and then when you got to the top, like how did you rethink the principles? Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for that, that for that um, add on uh, being so. You know, as you can imagine, Ali, it's very hard to ascend to a leadership position in prison uh, for yep. a variety <laughs> of reasons, right? <laughs> leadership controls the, the you know, you control the economy. Uh, you control pretty much everything in the prison, the commerce, the whatever resources are available. And, you know, when you're talking about, like, how do we align based on the principles for us, it was really a lot of assessment, right? Like what was other organizations doing that wasn't healthy, wasn't, you know, adding value? Um, and what are things that we needed to do different? So like with the, with the working out piece, you know, what I realized is that when you, when you work in concert with people and you're shoring up their weaknesses, but you're also encouraging them to like really step up, um, it was just something about that psychologically that, caused them to lean in even more. Uh, the principle of breaking bread. So, so what that looks like in prison is, you know, you have your standard prison fare or whatever that they serve, and it's terrible for the most part. And so most people who have the means just try to, you know, get food out of the commissary, but there's a lot of people who just don't have the means. I mean, you're making 17 cents an hour. Uh, by the time you buy a couple of bars of soap, and, you know, your basic needs, like you don't have much left. And being intentional about breaking bread and bringing people in who just didn't have any means, but not pointing out the obvious 
uh, or demeaning them because they didn't have the means, like it just built this level of camaraderie that really was unparalleled and other organizations started to like mimic our behavior. And, you know, the, 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 the part about leaning into the accountability piece, like that was super important of holding everybody accountable. Like everybody was accountable. If I came out to the yard and I didn't check into whatever post I was supposed to, I had to go and run laps like anybody else would. And so I had to be the first one to step up and say, okay, I didn't follow protocol. Cause like sometimes I would have security details and I'm like, well, I feel better defending myself than having this person. So I would ditch them. But then the security would be like, you know, you failed in your responsibility and here's what the sanction is. And even though I'm, I'm the ultimate authority where I could have just been like the hell with that sanction, you should have put somebody on there who was better, you know, equipped to secure me. It was the principle of knowing that I have to accept that this comes with the chain of command and I have to honor that. Um, and I think those, those type of just actions, you know, as, as being talked about what you do is so much more important than what you say, like those nuanced things where people would see in the past, other leaders would be like, man, I'm not going out there and run no laps, you know? Uh, and I would just be like, you know, I got to take that hit. I'm going to come out here and do what I need to do. And it just really just built up the leadership. And then ascended to the ranks part, it was difficult because it was, it was two different schools of thought. Um, and, and Michigan, if you're like under like 21, you go to this one prison called Michigan Reformatory. And then if you're older, you go to, you know, Jackson State Prison. And so the older guys, they very different than the younger guys. You know, obviously a lot more immaturity. So a lot more just random, you know, violence. Whereas with the older guys, they're a lot more conscious about beefs because typically it ends in death. So it's just a different thing. But when those cultures collided, you know, I was in this unique space as, as being, you know, one of the younger leaders and happened to, you know, really step up in a space where the older guys don't like to give up <laughs> leadership. Um, and so, you know, there were times where it led to a lot of tension on the yard and potentially like volatile wars. Yeah, same problems everywhere. <laughs> and then and then yeah. and then once you got to that position, how did you like what principles kind of did you have to remove and like which ones did you have to add? Because you had a you kind of inherited a discipline, but like super violent culture. Yeah, so that that was one of the things is is you know in that environment it's it's still very predatory, um, you know, and and we had some members who would you know do unscrupulous things to other people outside the organization, and largely because they was playing off the fears, right? Like they can go and take your shit, and you know what are you going to do when you have a whole organization to contend with? And so I eradicated that behavior. I was like, you know, this is not acceptable to take from anybody. Um, you know, and then there were just other like, you know, things where, you know, if you're if you're if you allow it to happen, then it'll continue on, you know. So there were certain things like, no, you can like sell hard drugs and you know, you couldn't like just set up shop on somebody else's block. And basically you couldn't be a bully. Um and then on the, the other part of it that, you know, going back to the diplomacy part, what I realized is like, you know, you're dealing with a bunch of young guys, a lot of testosterone, 
Uh, wars can break out at any given moment. You know, violent conflicts can, can escalate very, very quickly. And you can rule with violence only for so long. And if, you know, you employ something different that, that allows both parties to walk away feeling like they got what they needed, which was respect, dignity, honor, um, you know, you can, you can create very different outcomes, you know? And so a lot of the study groups, you know, I started emphasizing like, you know, meditation and mindfulness practice. And really, I didn't even know back then that this was like mental health care, that we all needed it. Um, you know, but I was discovering all these things from reading these different books. And I was like, this actually works. You know, this works. You know, you can really like lean into, um, you know, shifting how you think about a thing. But employing diplomacy is very difficult when it's, you know, hot and contested territory and things of that nature. But being able to say, listen, this is the line that we're standing on. And, you know, we don't want this violent conflict, not because we don't have a, you know, capacity for it, but because I believe that there's a better outcome that we can all produce. Um, you know, it took some years, but after a, after a couple of those battles, you know, it, it ended up working. But I mean, just in transparency, it also worked because at one point, violence was the mechanism. So people recognized it wasn't a, a, a lack of courage thing. It was more about leaning further into the principles that we all said we stood for. That's fascinating. Hey, I have a question, you know, that, you know, uh, came up last time we were speaking. So Felicia, when we opened up last time, started, um, uh, and I was not prepared for it, uh, told me that, you know, hey, Ali, you grew up, you faced a lot of discrimination. Um, you know, you had to deal with this in society. And how did you, how did you overcome that? And the answer I gave her was that I had this realization at one point in my life, which was that discrimination is yes, it's real. It's happening. Uh, it's everywhere. Um, but I had this realization that it only really happens by people who don't know you. So if you get a chance talking to someone for 60 minutes or an hour just with them, people who know you, they're going to treat you and you're going to get what you deserve. Everybody will get what they deserve. The discrimination happens when people don't actually know you and they're sort of judging you just you know, on the, on the surface. Um, and that kind of changed my life. I was curious. I wanted to throw the same question back at you and see, do you agree with that? Am I missing something? How do you view it? Because, you know, uh, you faced this a thousand times uh, worse than me. That's actually an interesting perspective. Uh, I do think proximity changes people's perception. And I think discrimination comes from a couple of things, like what perspective are you looking at when you're judging somebody who you don't actually know? And what is the lens that you're filtering that through, right? Like, you know, I tell people all the time, like I'm from Detroit, right? So being from Detroit, I would I would run into people and they'll see the D hat and they'll be like, you're from Detroit? And, and it, but it's like with this kind of question of like, you're actually here alive because everything they've heard about Detroit has been, you know, terrible, right? Yep. And I'm like, you know, this is a beautiful American city. This is a city that's contributed greatly to the world. And what I realized is that their perception was based on very limited, you know, point of view. And what, I, what I've also realized just on a personal level is the story that I tell myself is going to always be more important than what somebody else says to me or, or tells me about me. 
and walking into the to a space where I mean I get discriminated against by having a felony all the time, even at this point in my life, at this point in my career, you know, there's consistently hurdles that I have to overcome. And what I realize is that my internal narrative is always going to be the most important thing and that I can't account for somebody else's behavior. I can only show up fully as myself. And even in proximity, some of the most well-meaning people don't get it right um, because the narrative around which most people discriminate based on um, has been so deeply embedded in our culture. Excuse me. Um, and, you know, even absent the felony, just being a black man in America, there's a very particular narrative around who we are. And what I realize is that I just have to keep showing up as the best version of myself and keep taking on the challenge and being curious and, and you know, recognizing the difference between weak culture and strong culture. And to me, to give in to somebody else's idea of me who doesn't know me, like that would be operating out of a weak personal culture. Um, and so for me, it's like, I'm going to show up. I don't feel like I have to present myself like, I, you know, I hear the kind of poser syndrome and things of that nature. Um, and, and as you can imagine, this, it can be very intimidating to come from my background and be a tech exec. But what I realize is like talent and the willingness to learn, the willingness to really be collaborative, to ask questions about the things you don't know, to ask for help. Like those things tend to, to, you know, open people up in a very different way. And so the discrimination piece is, is really tough. It's really nuanced. And I think the most important thing that anybody can do is make sure that the story they're telling themselves is aligned with where they want to go and, you know, how they want to evolve in the world. I, can I add one thing? And I think about people who missed out on having a relationship with you because of your past, right? If I would have not reached out and read the galley and insisted you come up, it would have been a great loss to Ben and I. And so folks who do behave like assholes or however towards you, they're the real losers in this conversation because you're, you are an amazing person. Uh, thanks. Sis. I appreciate that. I mean, it, you know, but, but, no, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just about to say, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about, you know, about our relationship, and I'm happy we're having this conversation, um, because I know there's always people on the outside looking in, and they're just like, like, how the hell is, is Ben and Shaka like besties, right? Um, but I think the thing that, that, that people miss out on is like, when you connect with somebody in an authentic way around, you know, shared values, shared principles, shared interests, like, it doesn't matter where you came from, you know? And, you know, the first night me and Ben and hung out and, you know, all three of us hung out and we went to dinner, you know, we were up till three in the morning talking about everything, but, you know, uh, you know, deep stuff. We're talking about music and, and culture and, and things of that nature. And I think that's, that's what happens with people is that that block of discriminating against a person who they don't actually know, they just miss out on opportunities to get to, you know, know and collaborate with great people. By the way, I 100% agree with your, your self-image, who you think you are, that's the most important thing. And that's what I mean. You know, people will, people will judge you. They'll have prejudices against you. Uh, but after they get to know you for an hour, they actually will kind of come around to seeing you the way you see yourself because that's how you're going to carry yourself. That's how you, that's, that's the way you're going to behave. That's the way you're going to say things to them. And 
that's how they're going to also perceive you. So Absolutely. I think you kind of, you know, so it's, it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, uh, so that's at least what I learned. Like if I go around and say, yeah, you know, they look at me this way and I'm that way and I have to counter that, then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, um, yeah, I, so yeah, I, I, love, I love that. Yeah. I love that angle. And we have a DEI question from the audience that, that is really interesting, I think, because the three of us haven't talked about it, and we may all have three different answers. Um, so let me read it. For DEI programs, how do you measure success, subjectively or objectively? What does success look and feel like viscerally? Mm. And can I, can I add something to that, too, like yeah. as an add-on question? Should you have targets? Like, should you have percentage targets also as a goal in a company, right? We need this many percentage of this and that many percentage of that and so on in the company. Is that a good thing or not? That's a, that's a really, both of those are like really, really great, great questions. Um, you know, the, the whole data conversation is always interesting to me in the sense that, you know, obviously it gives you something to measure against whether you're, you know, actually doing the thing that you say you want to do. I think there are spaces where the metrics are important. You know, when you're talking about talent pool and you're talking about people who you're interviewing and things of that nature, uh, but also think there's spaces where it can be harmful, more harmful than helpful in a sense where you start cherry picking people who may not have the talent, but they have the look that fits into a certain box. And not only does it do a disservice to the company and the stakeholders, it also does a disservice to the person uh, because it doesn't honor their ability to grow, to evolve, to develop, you know, talent if they have it, or to recognize that they may need another career path or, or another career choice. And it's insulting for the people who actually do have the talent to know that people are recruiting solely based on, um, you know, race, gender, or whatever other, you know, metric we're, we're going by. And I think that's really harmful, especially in this culture, because, you know, I think a lot about our current climate is dishonest. And, you know, it's, it's really hard for people to say that, you know, we're not honest about how we're recruiting. We're just trying to check off the box. And, you know, to, to answer the question of, of the, um, you know, person who, who sent the thing, I think DEI be works best when it's embedded in a culture. Um, when it's when it's so much a part of the culture that you don't even have to check the metrics because you know that the culture is really intentional about being inclusive and being really thoughtful and strategic about how they're recruiting talent. Um, and it's more than just, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is more than just race and gender. Um, you know, there's cultural diversity, there's intellectual diversity, diversity. You know, I think about our company where, you know, there, there's members on our staff that if, if the hire would have been based solely on their resume or their educational background, like we wouldn't be here. And I include myself in that, right? I got a GED and I did 20 years in prison. Nobody would be like, yeah, that's the guy we're coming to hire to be a tech exec. Um, but I always recognize that talent is something that you have to have, you know, uh, first of all, a deep understanding of, but then you have to know how to identify it. And you have to know how to identify those things that may not be readily apparent. And the only way you can do that is by bringing diverse groups of people into the room, into the conversation, 
and thinking about other areas where people may have developed skill sets that you don't get from your traditional uh, pipeline, you know? And so to me, I think you know it when you walk into a space and people are just really being their authentic selves. Um, and it doesn't mean that you don't, you walk in and you're not professional and you're not, you know, upholding the standards of the company, but you can bring your curiosity. You can bring, you know, your cultural references. You can bring the unique things you learn um, in your walk of life. Like, you know, when I think about innovation, I learned so much about innovation from things in a joint that we weren't even identifying as innovation until I learned that word when I was at MIT Media Lab by doing a hackathon. You know, I had these Media Lab students do a prison hackathon to figure out the science behind some of the things we did in prison. And I was like, oh, we've been iterating and innovating our whole lives. We just didn't name it that. Uh, which to me says that in that environment or in any environment, there are people who have skill sets that may not show up on a resume. But if you're a good CEO, you will learn how to test for that. That's fascinating. Can I ask, are there things that underrepresented minorities do that does not help their cause in sort of companies and so on? I think, I mean, I think in this, in this current climate, um, you know, some of the things that can be harmful is approaching things with a sense of entitlement based solely on your race or your gender. Um, and, and using that as a crutch to not actually develop the next level skill set to do what the job requires. And I think just from a, from a, a cultural standpoint, standpoint right now where we're at, you know, it's almost like you can walk in the door and if you're of any targeted group and you have a bad interview, you can, you can use that to say, well, this company doesn't hire, you know, people who look like me or who come from where I come from. Um, and so they're discriminatory racist assholes. Um, and, and that cannot be true, but because of the current climate, it can be taken as the truth. And to me, I think that's, that's one of the things that can potentially be harmful in actually creating access because if people have biases, which all of us do in, to some degree, right? Um, one bad experience can reinforce that bias. And not to say that the person coming in is responsible for a leader checking their bias, because ultimately that's, that's, that's their responsibility, but it can contribute to further uh, discriminatory practices um, in that way. And so, I, you know, I think when I, when I talk to companies and talk to people and they're like, you know, this is a very difficult conversation to have. I'm like, it's actually not a difficult conversation. We just need to have honest <laughs> conversations. And if we have honest conversations, you can cut through a bunch of the bullshit. Like, I would never want to be hired by anybody who was checking a box. You know, like, that would be, because that would be an insult to, like, my intelligence. You know, like, I, I believe that I'm a pretty intelligent person. And, like, that honors me is when somebody says, let me see if you're up to the task. Like, let's try this thing out. You know, this is what happened at Trip Actions. Like, it was no guarantee I was going to come in and be successful. Um, but Ariel was like, well, let's try it out and let's see what happens. And so at that point, you know, it's up to me to show up. It's up to me to, to, to kind of figure out uh, what skill sets I bring to the table and how does it add value to the company in a real way. So, you know, I just think, I think our current climate is making it really hard to cut through some of the noise and to really assess talent that's that's actually there. You know, it's, it's so much talent in underrepresented communities. And 
you know, you also have to just have a willingness. You know, you got to have a will to say, I want to do this thing different. Um, and that's and that's the difficult part. I love the thing you said also. You know, I think the phrase came up at some point. Someone said, you know, we need to we need to focus on, we need to get better at diversity hiring. And I said that phrase, it should be just hiring, right? I Nobody wants to be like, oh, you know, I'm the diversity hire here. That's the worst thing you could do to a person, right? Um, they should just be an awesome hire, period. Uh, and we should remove yeah. biases to hire them. Yeah. And I, I think that's a big kind of part of it is can you can you recognize talent across cultures and groups and genders or can you only recognize the talent that you yourself have and you know th this is one of my kind of pet peeves with how people how so many companies do it do dni they start from this place of well the talent's not there so we need a quota to close the gap and I think that's exactly the wrong way to look at it. You got to look at it. The talent's there, and hey, we got to get better at up. seeing it. You might repeat uh, that part. That's yeah. The, so so many. The most people, crucial point that broke up. Yeah. So so people look at it in this negative, like the talent's not there because society is so racist, so the talent doesn't exist, and so I've got to close the gap with a quota, which is not true and creates a really bad environment for the people that you hire, as opposed to the talent is out there and our company needs to get better at seeing it and recognizing it, particularly if it's in areas that we ourselves don't have. And that's how we're going to get better, which is why I think the metrics on DEI that I like to focus on are employee satisfaction across groups promotion rates across groups and things like that. Like what kind of place is it to work once you get there? Because if the talent's out there and you're a great place to work across cultures, then you're going to have a cross-cultural environment. And if you're not, you can set the quota for whatever you want. You'll never hit it because they'll just keep quitting. And, uh, and I think people get it just so upside down and backwards. And what I always like to think is like, okay, when I look across the different groups that we have at our firm, how many people like feel like it's their firm? Like, is it only white people? Is it only Asian people? Is it only black people? Is it only women? Is it only men? Or does everybody, can everybody feel like, no, this is mine? And if you can achieve that, to me, like to answer the question from my perspective, like that's the visceral feeling that you're trying to get to, that we can all work together and, you know, and recognize each other's talent. You've removed biases, right, from that system. It's a system that doesn't have a bias. Well, yeah, and, and just, like, can you see it? You know, like, can I can see Shaka because he's a boss, and I'm a boss, and, and bosses can see each other. Like, I'm good at bossing, he's good at bossing. Like, that's no problem. But, you know, like, can you see somebody who's good at selling? Can you see somebody who's good at relationships? Can you see somebody, you know, who has something that you might not have? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Can I take the flip side of the question? I'm just curious about it. Are there, is there, yeah. are there things, I don't know if that's the right word, the majority, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, could do to help with DEI or anything they're doing that's sort of hurting it. And maybe they're doing it you know, with the right intentions, but it's actually not helping. You know, that, that's, that's a great question. And I think um, 
you know, it's, it's really interesting to watch how things unfolded after George Floyd, uh, you know, w- was murdered, you know, and, and then every company just was like, oh, shit, we have to do something. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that oh, shit reaction was actually well intended, but it was also harmful. Um, because what it what it did is it put kind of like the onus of responsibility on you know communities who don't may or may not have access to become educators, um, and that's that's really hard to deal with when somebody's like, "Hey, can you educate me on race in America?" And it's like we're like all adults, <laughs> like you know, um, or when people play the privilege card, right? Like when people start off with the conversation, well, you know, I really don't know because, you know, my privilege, like that's an insult because you don't know what my experience is. I may have more privilege than you, uh, even though I may not have racial privilege. Um, you know, there's different things. And so I think what, what happens is the lack of follow through on the more meaningful stuff um, and nothing to me trumps proximity. Like being close to people, then, you know, having experiences that don't mirror yours and not from like some voyeuristic, hey, let me go in the hood and, and see what's going on over here. But like, are you really <laughs> spending time with leaders who have already been through it? Are you spending time with multicultural leaders, uh, leaders from different genders, different companies, and just having real authentic conversations? And are you are you really willing to do the gut check and say, damn, my last 10 hires look like mini me's. Um, and maybe I do have a bias that I'm not looking at and maybe it's not the pipeline. So I just think, you know, the, the, the harmful thing is to, you know, create a department and then not lean into that department and be present in it. I think the CEO has to be a part of what happens with DEI. Uh, Ariel and I meet, you know, on a regular basis. We, we, we talk about things, we agree, we disagree. And it's it's been amazing for me because it also gives me the opportunity to learn. And I think that's what's missing. Oftentimes it's kind of like this one-sided learning where, you know, somebody's trying to learn everything it means to be black, but there's things that I can learn as well. You know, there's, there's, you know, how does bias even form or if there's bias exists or what is your cultural background and experience? And I think the the narrative has been for so long that, you know, people are monolithic, you know, like none of us are monolithic, yeah. like not all white people are the same, not all white people come from the same experience. Um, are there some things that are advantageous? Absolutely, you know, un- unequivocally, like we know that to be a factual reality, but it doesn't mean that people don't come with different experiences that they can contribute to the conversation to not only, you know, ensure that the company is doing the right thing around these issues, but also the people that's working for the company is walking away with something more meaningful than a paycheck. And if I'm in a space where I'm working and I'm not learning different cultural values, that's just a lost opportunity. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, think of it that way. Like I didn't, I didn't come to, to fix Trip Action's culture. I came to be a part of a company that's doing something amazing and fascinating and, you know, that that really keeps me excited. Uh, but also came to learn from different experiences. And I think that, you know, leaders within a majority class creating that invitation that isn't packaged around, you know, difficult conversations or privilege, like that's when things change. That's when, you know, you start to really see that somebody actually sees you and actually understands you. 
and they're not looking at you to fix their shit. They're actually saying, listen, how can we work together to make our company better for anybody who works here? Um, you know, and I think that that's where people can get it wrong. And, and even like shutting down, you know, other employees because they happen to be white. Uh, I've seen that happen. You know, I've seen, you know, where, you know, white people who really mean well and who really want to learn get shut down with the word privilege, you know, or you don't understand because of your privilege. And like, to me, that doesn't allow for real growth to happen. It doesn't allow for real collaboration to happen. And it doesn't allow for honest conversations to take place. Yeah, and that's such a good point. I think, you know, one of the challenges is you have the D&I experts around are all like the worst management books in the world are written by management consultants because they don't actually have any idea about how a company works. So they just get these kind of fantastical stories from, you know, people kind of the success story without any of the uh, how it, how the mechanics actually go. And well, they've never done it. Effect. Yeah, exactly. None of them have ever done it. even worse. <laughs> DNI is worse because they, they're not even management consultants. They're like, you know, academics who come up with some race theory, but they they don't know what it means to run an organization, which is, I think, like one of the genius things that Ariel did in bringing on Shaka was Shaka understands what it means to run an organization. So every single thing you say and everything you do starts to set an incentive that moves the culture, that moves behavior, that moves how people treat each other. And well, in an academic context, well, there's no such thing as racism against white people. Well, like, you know, any of us who kind of interact, like, we know that's bullshit because you're right. You can shut somebody down really easily by saying something like that to them. And then you lose that person and you lose your talent, which is kind of the thing that you need most in these companies. So it's, uh, you know, that's such an awesome insight. Yeah. Hey, let's not talk shit about academics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. Ali has got a PhD. He's yeah. the only one with a PhD. Well, I, I did teach at the university level, though, Ali, so yeah. <laughs> All right, we, we joke, we call it permanent right. head damage. Yeah, so we're we're coming up on uh, on the end of the hour, so uh, why don't I just get closing thoughts uh, from Shaka and Ali, and, um, and then uh, we'll just thank everybody for coming. Yeah, no, thank, thank you so much for having me in this conversation. It actually feels good to work a, a different muscle. Um, you know, I know a lot of people know me a lot for criminal justice work, and that's work that's still, you know, really important to me that I'm really passionate about. I'm, I'm trying to get more companies to, you know, really look at that particular talent pool. I think there are some incredibly talented people coming out of prison who just need a second chance. Um, and, you know, I feel like my role in that is to create space for that to happen and, ensure that, you know, they got the necessary tools to succeed if they get an opportunity in these environments. And the other part of it is just like, you know, I feel, you know, truly honored just to be having a conversation about something that's not necessarily criminal justice. Um, not because I don't love that crew, but because, you know, this is just another part of who I am as a person. And I'm going to tell you a quick story, and, it, and, it, and it, you know, and I hope the audience take it for what it is. But here, here's when I, I began to recognize at Trip Actions that people were really just embracing me for my talent and not for my experience. Um, so in, in corporate culture, you know, people say whenever somebody's won or they've done a great job, 
like, man, you really killed it. You really, you know, you really killed that thing, right? And I remember, you know, one of the, the earlier conversations I had brought, I think it was maybe Van Jones in for a conversation. It was just a great conversation. And a couple of my colleagues reached out and man, it was like, man, you, you killed that conversation. And, you know, I thought to myself, here it is, you know, I've been convicted of murder. And, you know, to have colleagues that's just like, they're not even thinking about that. That's not even what's on their mind when they say something like that. They're just saying, hey, we're, we're celebrating that you did something good. And like their instinct isn't to be like, oh, shit, we can't say that to Shaka because he actually did, you know, kill somebody. Um, like that let me know that the talent and what I was bringing to the company uh, was far more important than what my past is. And so, you know, I think we're on the right track as a company, um, you know, for those who don't follow Trip Actions, you know, check us out. We're doing some great stuff over there. And I'm just really excited to be a part of this company and doing the work that I do. That's awesome. And, you know, I would say my, my favorite thing uh, uh, from this clubhouse uh, tonight was uh, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, how, how really it's all about having honest conversations and building trust. Important to board, look for quick fixes, you know, a label they can get behind or a quota they can set. And they're hoping that it's a one and done and they're done with that. Uh, but it's really just about being able to see each other for who we really are and uh, being honest about it and just, you know, talking things through uh, without all these labels or quotas or the quick fixes. And it's uh, it's going to be a dialogue that goes on for a long time. So that's uh, that's my main takeaway. So thank you for that, Chaka. Yeah, that's such a great, great point. There's no box you can check <laughs> on building a culture that, you know, everybody can live in and be happy. That's not a, that's not a checkbox. That's not, yeah. okay, we have this percentage of that. That's such a great point. All right, well, thank you. Thank you, everybody, um, for coming to Boss Talk. Um, this has been a, a really fun talk. And thank you, everybody who helped us warm up the room, Pat and Jules and Ime and Felicia. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we will see you next week on Boss Talk. Yeah, thanks, everyone. All right, peace, y'all. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. All right, sis. Bye-bye, brother.